Welcome to the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast, brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. In today's lesson from the Israelites' journey, we will see how the Israelite community shifts quickly from worship to whining in the wilderness. God has much to say to them and to us about the spiritual dangers of grumbling and complaint. So open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 15 and join us as we continue to learn how the journey from bondage to freedom points us to Jesus Christ. As I think about this day, I am grateful and I believe that this should be a, a national day of recognition because October 1st should, from here on out, be known as National Seinfeld Gets on Netflix Day. <laughs> and uh, I am uh, and have been for many years a big fan of this situational comedy. And I began to think about it. And, and Max Groene in the back, he, he's younger than me. He, he doesn't quite understand the nuances of this show. But it, it is uh, one that had, had became one of the most popular sitcoms of all time. Some might rank it up there as one of the top. And I began thinking about the show, and it is on Netflix. I checked this morning. I almost was tempted to watch a few episodes before even coming here. It is on Netflix as of this morning. And I thought about the show. What made it such a popular show? Because it bills itself as a show about nothing. And maybe that makes us all feel like we can somehow relate to the characters, although I hope no one is like any of the characters on the show because they are all narcissistic, selfish people. Um, But yet we're drawn to this show And I realized that one of the themes of the show and all throughout every episode is that they're always complaining about something. They're complaining about who they're dating, where they live, New York City, their boss, their job, their food, everything. There's always something that they're complaining about, all the characters. And I realized it builds itself as a show about nothing, but it's really a show about complaining, which means it's a show really about nothing but complaining. And... I think that that is why we are drawn to it, at least at some point in American culture, we were so drawn to the show because we see ourselves and can relate a lot to the characters of the show because I am convinced that we are a generation of grumblers living in a culture of complaint, and that is just who we are. And we complain about certain things that maybe we have justification for, like when I paid for a new sprinkler head to be put in on Monday, and later that very afternoon, my dog is playing with it because she dug it up and she's in the yard with it. That, that probably leaves me some room for complaint. But we think about the different facts of, of, of our lives. We think about the frustrations and the difficulties. And at a certain point in time, what, what we begin to complain about might seem like it's petty, but maybe it's not such a surface-level thing because maybe our grumbling and our complaint points to a deeper spiritual problem. And I would argue as we look at our text for today that indeed that is the issue because complaining is easy to do, but I think it does at times reveal a deep spiritual problem because if we find those surface-level things to complain about, like my favorite sports team and how they did or didn't perform. How do those complaints eventually echo up to how we view God and who He is and His declared faithfulness and whether or not we're willing to trust Him in His promises or be discontent and grumble in our distrust, as we'll see that the Israelites have done. 
Yes, as Stan said, we, um, we came from a wonderful week last week of looking at what God did through the Red Sea. And the Israelites sing a song at the beginning of Exodus 15, the next chapter. And it's a song of worship and praise. But we find that their tune quickly turns from one of worship to one of whining in the wilderness, which is where we find ourselves today in Exodus 15 and 16. A chorus of complaint is our next stop on our journey through this wilderness with the Israelites. And I find that this is a great text to teach on or preach on because it's about not grumbling. So if you have any complaints about the words that you hear from me, uh, you are not supposed to complain about them. So I find that very liberating. Um, We do have a structure for our passage today. We'll look at the tail end of Exodus 15 leading into 16. And the structure goes like this as we think about this chorus of complaint. We have some musical terms. The first portion is the prelude from the end of Exodus 15. Then we have the crescendo at the beginning of Exodus 16. And it really gets, it gets rough for these Israelites. And then finally we have the postlude, which is a summary of, of God's provision in the wilderness for them. And as I was just commenting to Phil, no uh, good lesson would be complete without a map. So here we again have a map to orient us to where we, we could be. If you remember last week, we talked about that scholars debate on exactly where the Red Sea was, where the crossing was. They debate about where Mount Sinai is in the wilderness. So we have two possible locations. Uh, one is kind of in this middle of what's now known as the Sinai Peninsula in the wilderness there. And then we could also look to the right, farther to the east, to uh, this area that's on here labeled as Midian, which could have been the site of the Israelites' journeys and this location of places that will be mentioned in the scriptures. Think again about God moving two million people from Egypt, delivering them, moving them through this wilderness, crossing the Red Sea. And uh, the Israelites have experienced one of the most remarkable miracles of of history, which is this parting of the Red Sea. And it's amazing how quickly their tune turns from one of worship to one of whining in the wilderness. So let's, uh, let's look at our text and begin with the prelude from Exodus 15, verses 22 through 27. Again, thinking the Red Sea parting has just happened And we find that that happened three days before. So, we'll pick up the action in verse 22. Then Moses, and they just sung this great song. It's great. If you want a song of worship, go back and read the first part of Exodus 15 about God's deliverance. And uh, we'll sing, he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider, he's thrown into the sea. Then we get to verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur, They went three days, three days. What is that, 72 hours? I'm not the best at math. That's three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah, which is the Hebrew word for bitterness. The belief is that this water may have been very salty or briny or brackish, so it was not suitable for drinking. And for certain, this was a problem as they're thinking about the hot conditions of the desert and the possibility of becoming dehydrated. The people have a real dilemma 
But it's their response to the dilemma which yields and shows us their distrust in God's faithfulness. The God who had just delivered them from this great dilemma by the Red Sea. Uh, And so the people grumbled. That's a key word. That word is going to be repeated nine different times, both as a verb and as a noun, throughout our passage today. They grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. Maybe it was a full tree. Maybe it was a log. It was a piece of wood. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There's nothing magical about this piece of wood, just like there was nothing magical about Moses' staff being held over the Red Sea. But it was God choosing through his agent Moses and this piece of wood to perform a miracle to show his people that he was faithful and he would provide. After this miracle, the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. He wanted to find out the quality of their spiritual walk and that moment in the face of adversity. And And he says in verse 26, If you will diligently listen... That's that Hebrew word Shema, listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in His eyes and give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes. I will put none of these diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord. We're expecting to hear, I am the Lord your God, but no. He gives Himself a new title, I am the Lord your healer. Because he realized his people needed healing. They needed healing coming from the idolatry of the Egyptian culture where they were for centuries. They needed healing of their discontentment. They needed healing of their distrust. They needed him to heal them and to trust him. Then verse 27. They came to Elam, which is a Hebrew word for palms, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees And they encamped there by the water. Uh, So it's almost as if God was saying, if you just waited a little longer, this place that's just over the way, this oasis, this rich Carlton of the ancient world right here in the middle of the desert that I have for you, where you want water, I've got plenty of water and palm trees and springs. God's desire was that his people would trust him. We find that uh, in this uh, situation, God establishes this covenant agreement with his people. If you will obey me, if you will trust me, all of the plagues that you saw in Egypt, I will not bring upon you as my people. We find that uh, their response and their distrust was their first failure of a test that God had intended to put them through. In the New English Translation study note, we read the following quotation. The first event of the Israelites' desert experience is a failure, for they murmur against Yahweh and are given a stern warning and the provision of sweet water. The event teaches that God is able to turn bitter water into sweet water for His people, and He promises to do such things if they obey. He can provide for them in the desert. He did not bring them into the desert to let them die. But there is a deeper level to this story. The healing of the water is incidental to the healing of the people, their lack of trust. God uses adversity to test his people's loyalty. The response to adversity must be prayer to God, for he can turn the bitter into the sweet, the bad into the good, 
and the prospect of death into life. Maybe for you, where you are in this current part, part of your life, maybe you're wondering, how can God ever turn this bitter thing into something sweet? How, how can He turn something that has been difficult and painful into something that is good? He is the God. He does redeem, and He desires to do that in our lives, just as He did with the Israelites. So that is the prelude. That's sort of like the opening act for the main band. And now we find we move into this chapter 16 as the, this chorus of complaint rises to a crescendo. And I have a feeling it's because they were basically being moved from this wonderful oasis. And they probably didn't want to move because they had gotten comfortable. But we start in chapter 16 and read these following words. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of sin. It's not meant to be, by the way, a comment on the concept of sin and evil. It's just the name. It's connected to the Hebrew name for Sinai. And that is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. So this is now a month and a half removed from all of the plagues that they had seen and been delivered from and the Red Sea miracle right after that. So 45 days later, they're now being moved from this great oasis. The chorus of complaint continues in verse 2, guys. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled, there's our key word again, word again, against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And this is a different problem. Not water, but now food. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the, in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. What? This is madness. First of all, you were slaves in Egypt, Israelites. You did not sit by the meat pots full of food. And you believe that Moses and that the Lord has brought you out here to kill you after all he's done? <coughs> Then the Lord said to Moses, and this is God compassionately, in his righteous anger in some ways, but in his his gracious goodness, responding to the people's need as, as the faithful God that he is. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily." So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. My guess is they, they already knew that, but they needed constant reminders of that, just as we do. Verse 7, And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because He has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. It's a warning from Moses to the people. Be careful, because you may think that you're frustrated with us, but your frustration and your discontent and your distrust is ultimately a reflection of how you see God. 
Verse 9, Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord. The Hebrew there is, Come before the face of the Lord Yahweh. For he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. In the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. God's reputation amidst his people was on the line. They had a complaint about a legitimate need, they were concerned about running out of food, just as they were concerned about running out of water. My guess is if enough time had gone on without any solution, they would have found something else to complain about. But you know, the truth is, as you go throughout, as we go throughout the rest of their journeys together, you will find several points of complaining and grumbling by the people in spite of all that God has done. And we're going to find out just what a problem that is and the consequences for that for the people. But to summarize this section and uh, the next few verses, which we will... Uh, We will skip over those in detail before we get to the final end of chapter 16. God is putting his people to the test. He says, I'm going to provide this substance for you in the morning. And they would call it manna, which is literally the Hebrew word for what is it? Because they'd never seen anything like it. But it was this flaky substance that would be from the, the dew. Because the desert, yes, it had sand, but it also had vegetation. And this vegetation would have dew, and in the morning that dew would somehow uh, be littered with this flaky substance that they would take and they would eat. And they could collect up to a day's portion for every person in the assembly, all two million people. And as we can tell, that was about a two-liter bottle's worth of manna. So they collected a two-liter They had enough to eat for the day. Later, God would also provide quail in the evening for them to eat as meat. But we we learn more about that later in their journey. So God, again, graciously providing for his people. But he wanted them, he would test them. Will you believe me? And will you collect for six days? And on the sixth day, will you collect twice as much and no more? And then on the seventh day, not collect anything at all. It's this whole principle called the Sabbath. And he was again asking them and testing them to see if they would obey him and trust that he would provide. And we know what it's like. And we read accounts of what happened to the people who went out on that seventh day to try to collect a little bit, but it was rancid. It was, it was ruined. It was rotted because God would not provide on that day to those who were disobedient. He provided twice as much on the sixth day. We realize this is the Chick-fil-A business model. That is why Chick-fil-A is closed on Sunday. So when you go to Chick-fil-A on Saturday, you have to buy twice as much. And I'm just kidding. It, it would not be as satisfying. But, um, but God was providing for his people in a miraculous way. Do you see that? The plagues in Egypt, the Red Sea, the sweet water, and now this manna. <clears throat> in many ways, this leads up to the postlude, which is a summary of this section. Verse 31. Now, the house of Israel called its name manna. Again, what is it? It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer, and that's about the two liter size, 
An omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the, the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to the habitable land. That is the promised land. And they, uh, they ate manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer is about a tenth part of an ephah. So this, this summarizes uh, this account. And it shows us that God believed that the manna and what it represented was so important that he commanded about a two-liter portion of it to be set aside and held so that it would be a, a place, a thing of remembrance for the people. And he says that it was eventually to be put in the testimony. This is a reference to the Ark of the Covenant. And you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know what it looks like. But the Ark of the Covenant was not yet constructed, but it would be later in this book of Exodus. And we find that God commanded three things to be put in the Ark of the Covenant. The two stone tablets of the Ten Commandments, uh, a branch that uh, signified Aaron's leadership as the priest of, of, of the nation of Israel, and an omer of manna kept in the Ark of the Covenant. And why? Why was this just as important as these Ten Commandments? Because it was a reminder to God's people of His faithfulness and His provision in the wilderness. So that generations to come would hear the story and generations to come would trust in God rather than distrust and grumble against Him as the Israelites had done. It's fascinating to me that this was just as important to God as the Ten Commandments and that He ordered that it would be put in the Ark of the Covenant. I find that we can learn a lot from this passage, a lot about ourselves from the example of the Israelites. And what we learn first is that the problem is that our grumbling grieves God. And some of you heard me preach this message very similarly uh, over the summer if you attend the chapel. Um, but again, there's no complaining, so you can't complain if you're hearing it twice. Um, and I think if you do, it shows that maybe you didn't listen well the first time. And, uh, but guys, I'm putting myself in the camp of complaint with you. I am, I've recognized in my own life just how much I need to hear this message um, and I'm convicted of my own grumbling. So please hear me. I, I don't mean to joke at, at your expense. I, I, I humbly want to submit myself to God's word and struggle to do it just like anyone else. But our grumbling does grieve God. And for sure, that was a legitimate need, the water and the food and the, the fear that that was going to run out. But we find that this word grumbling, which is repeated either in verbal form or noun form, uh, in the verb form, it's loon, which maybe will help you Remember, when I'm, when I'm loony and I'm grumbling, that's the Hebrew word for, uh, for, the, for grumbling. And then uh, telunah is the noun form. But what we find is that this word is more than just complaining. It's deeper than that. It's uh, described in this way. It is used almost exclusively in the wilderness wandering stories to describe the rebellion of the Israelites against God. It's, it's rebellion. It's a heart of distrust and disobedience. Uh, they were not merely complaining. They were questioning God's abilities and motives. The action is something like a parliamentary vote of no confidence. 
we find that this was the attitude of choice of the Israelites in the wilderness. Not just in this section, but this word is repeated at points throughout their time in the wilderness. And it reaches its full crescendo in Numbers where we find that the 12 spies are sent into the land and it's, it's seen as a good land, but they bring back a bad report and the people grumble and God finally says, that is it, I'm up to here with it. The whole first generation must die before this new generation can enter the promised land because he understood what the grumbling communicated about how they viewed him in light of all he had done in light of who he is in truth. But our grumbling grieves God for several reasons. It, it disturbs our community. We find that we read that the whole congregation of Israel was grumbling. And I imagine it started in a few pockets here and a few pockets there, and then like a pandemic spread to the whole community. And we know what that's like. If you have Facebook, you know what that's like. One little complaint here, it only takes a spark to get a fire going. And before you know it, these ripples were sent out into the community. And, and that is true for us today. Our grumbling never brings joy, it never unites, it never solves problems. It only creates more. And it disturbs our community. We find that this is grieving to God because it distorts our concept of reality. Remember that whole line? Oh, if we could only be back in Egypt where we sat by the meat pots. Guys, they were slaves in Egypt. They talk about 45 days ago being enslaved in Egypt and all the ills that they experienced. They talk about it like it was uh, living life at the Golden Corral for all you can eat forever. It was not. It was a place of slavery and hardship. They had nothing. And yet, because of their grumbling, they have a distorted view of the past. And maybe we are like that as well. Maybe like them, we'd rather be uh, enslaved and dead to be fed rather than freed. Maybe we think so much about the way things used to be when we fail to realize the way things used to be, there were problems back then too. Because grumbling can distort and cloud our perspective. The final reason, and maybe the most important, is that grumbling diminishes our commitment to God. It diminishes our commitment to the Lord himself. We find that Moses says, your grumbling's not against me and Aaron, it's against the Lord. And for that reason, we find that there's a significant level of distrust that the Israelites had in God and his provision. And we find in our lives, at least I know in mine, that the same is true. It's the more that I, I, I see and, and the more that I grumble about, the more I complain about, it demonstrates to me that I'm ultimately not seeing who God, God for who He is and what He has provided in His faithfulness. Because I would love to say I would never join the Israelites in their grumbling. I would never, after seeing the Red Sea and all of the, the miracles that God did, I would never join them. But the truth is, guys, we're just like them. And the Apostle Paul knew this when he wrote 1 Corinthians 10, verses 9 through 12. This is our struggle, not just their struggle. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. That's from Numbers 21. That's coming. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. The spe specific example here is from Numbers 16, which is also coming. But the spirit that is mentioned here is one of grumbling, and that's a problem. And Paul warns, now these things happen to them as an example. 
But they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. We're just as susceptible to grumbling and distrust in God and His goodness and His grace as the Israelites were. So that's the problem, but the solution is, is the, the opposite of grumbling. It's gratitude, because you have to uproot something and replace it with something else. And that would be gratitude, our gratitude which glorifies God. And why is that? Three reasons. The first is it reminds us of His goodness in the past. As God wants the people to know, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When we're grateful, we remember more clearly who God is and what He has done. And you can think of certain parts of your life where God has brought you through this dilemma and this difficulty. And at the time, you praised Him and you thanked Him for bringing you through that. And when you are grateful, you remember God's deliverance, you remember His faithfulness. These past 18 months have certainly provided us difficulty, but we can also be grateful to see how God has even provided for all of us in different ways throughout this past year and a half, as difficult as it has been. In addition to this, our gratitude recognizes His grace in the present. God constantly says, you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Meaning, uh, know the Hebrew word yada, which is an intimacy, an intimate knowledge of knowing in the present that I am. Not I was, and not even that I will be, although those are both true, but I am the Lord your God. And I think that God desires for us to be a grateful people so that we can recognize His grace to us in the moment as fallen sinners in need of redemption, in need of salvation that He has provided. And we find that when we are grateful, not when we grumble. I know of a, of a former colleague whose father was dying of cancer. And he went down to visit him in Houston once. And his dad said, I am so grateful for cancer my cancer. And just what? I don't know many people that can say that. And he said his father continued by saying, it's brought me closer to Jesus than I ever thought that I could ever be. Because our gratitude recognizes his grace in the present. Finally, it represents his glory to others. God's glory appears in the wilderness. It's when they look into the wilderness that they see His glory. This same glory is actually displayed through you and through me when we are a people who are grateful and thankful for God and all that He has given us, especially all that He has given us, not just the material things, and those are wonderful blessings and gifts, but the ultimate gift of His Son, Jesus Christ. When we choose not to, to grumble but to be grateful, we are displaying His glory for the world as we read. In Philippians 2, 14 and 15, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So we see that our grumbling, it diminishes, it dims that light that we are to shine in, in the world that desperately needs to hear that we are a thankful people because we are forgiven people, because God is a gracious God. So the way that we recover from our grumbling and the application to take with us as we think about moving into this weekend, into our week, is to choose an attitude of gratitude instead of stumbling in your grumbling. 
Another way to say it is, be grateful, don't grumble. And I've had to repeat this to myself a lot lately, so I'd like to practice that with me. Let's say, be grateful, don't grumble. Be grateful, don't grumble. Those of you online, practice it too. Uh, I think that uh, God tested his people in the wilderness to see if they would trust him. And whatever provision we are looking for, financial, relational, spiritual, physical, uh, God desires to give us what we need so that we will be grateful and not grumble against him. He wants us to trust in him. He wants us to walk in his law and obey his commands as an expression of our trust and to understand that he wants to use even these trials and difficulties to shape us more into the people that he wants us to be, more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That is not easy. That is difficult. But our attitude and our response is the key. We find two final quotations as we close this morning. One is from this book, The Land Between, which I highly recommend by Jeff Mannion, uh, Finding God in Difficult Transitions. He writes, God loves to provide for us. Providing is what he does, and he does it with the intimate knowledge of who we are and what we need. Remember that God is at work in all things and that he desires to shape and transform you, me. Resist the temptation to zone out, numb out, or check out. God intends to grow something beautiful and deep and lasting, but we must cooperate with God. Don't let your detour go wasted. You are in training, and God is up to something good. In other words, if we pursue a spirit of grumbling, we become bitter. But if we pursue and allow God graciously to help us to be grateful, we become better people. Notice, too, that God actually led his people into the difficulty. And sometimes God does that to us in order to test us, but also to grow us. Scholar Alan P. Ross writes, A method of God's dealing with the Israelites as his people that he, uh, is that he frequently employed. It stands out clearly in these instances. God did not lead the Israelites around difficulty. Instead, he led them into many difficulties, but he also provided deliverance for them in their difficulties. This caused the Israelites to learn to look to him for the supply of their needs. He still deals with his children in the same way. Guys, he may be moving you through a very difficult situation or season right now because he wants to prove to you that he is faithful to provide all that you need in the midst of it. And you know why I have proof and you have proof that this is true? It's because God has given his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ of the gospel proves that God is faithful, proves that God provides, proves that God knows us and meets us in the midst of even the most difficult situations where we just want to complain till our eyes cry out. But God says, I am with you. And that's because he's provided the ultimate solution to every problem through Jesus Christ. And it's only through Jesus Christ that we have the strength and grace to even be a grateful people. You see, the manna that God provided ultimately pointed to a greater bread, a greater manna. Remember, our journey points us to Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself, after feeding the 5,000 people, was approached by some folks, and they pointed to the manna. And Jesus says, the manna points to me. They say, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as is it written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. 
And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. That sounds really good, Jesus. Please give us this bread. They were thinking about something physical. Jesus' words in response are shocking. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What we find, guys, as we conclude is that maybe we're asking the wrong question. Maybe we're, we're asking the, the manna question. Well, what is it? Why, why am I going through this? God, what, what is happening here? Which are, those questions are okay, but probably better than asking, what is it? We need to ask, who is he? He is Jesus, the Son of God, who died for your sins and mine, and three days later was raised to glorious resurrection and victory, so that we too might walk in newness of life and be a people who are grateful and don't grumble and see his provision in all things. Be grateful. Don't grumble. That's because our grumbling grieves God, but our gratitude glorifies God. As we think about Jesus as the true manna, who is the bread of life, remember that the journey from bondage to freedom points us to Jesus. Thank you for joining us for the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast. I hope you will join us again next week for the next leg of our journey. For more information on the Williamsburg Friday Men's Breakfast, please visit wcchapel.org slash men's breakfast. Have a great week.